0: This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 324A, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Fourth Dimension, Sacred Geometry, Alchemy, and Mathematics, translated by Katherine Krieger. I am on the second part of the book, which is a whole s- bunch of sets of questions and answers. I'm going to through, go through a multiple set each time. I'm going to call it Lecture 9 and Lecture 10 and Lecture 11 as I go through each chunk, uh, So, that, but they're not. They're just collated. Question and Answers. As it says here, questions and answers from 1904 to 1922. Editor's note in the original German publication, the first question and answer is from 1904 in Berlin. There is no recorded question, only that it was asked by a Mr. Schouten, and the answer is simply a reply from Steiner that he would be giving a lecture shortly on the fourth dimension. Question and Answers, Stuttgart. September 2nd, 1906 A question about the work of the I. Capital The I works on the astral body, the ether body, and the physical body. All human beings work on the astral body through moral self-education. But even when a person begins the process of initiation or esoteric schooling, much work remains to be done on the astral body. Initiation marks the beginning of more intensive work on the ether body through the cultivation of aesthetic, taste, and religion. Initiates work consciously on the ether body. In a certain respect, astral consciousness is four-dimensional. To give you an approximate idea of it, let me say that anything dead tends to remain within the three ordinary dimensions, while anything living constantly transcends them. Through its movement, any growing thing incorporates the fourth dimension within the three. If we move in a circle that is growing ever larger, we eventually arrive at a straight line. See figure 61. If we continue moving along this line, however, we will no longer be able to return to our starting point because our space is three-dimensional. In astral space, which is closed off on all sides, we would return. In astral space, it is impossible to continue to infinity. Physical space is open to the fourth dimension. Height and width are two dimensions, and the third dimension is the lifting out and entering into the fourth dimension. A different geometry prevails in astral space. Questions and answers. Nuremberg, uh, June 28, 1908. Question. Question. Since time had a beginning, it is obvious to assume that space also has limits. What is the reality of the situation? That's a very difficult question, because the faculties needed to understand the answer cannot be developed by most people of today. For now, you will have to simply take the answer at face value, but a time will come when it will be understood completely. The physical world's space with its three dimensions, as we human beings conceive of it, is a very illusory concept. We usually think that space either must reach to infinity or have boundaries where it is somehow boarded up and comes to an end. Kant put forward these two concepts of the infinity and the finiteness or limitedness of space and showed that there is something to be said for and against both of them. We cannot judge the issue so simply, however. Since all matter exists in space and all matter is a condensed part of spirit, it becomes evident that we can achieve clarity on the question of space only by ascending from the ordinary physical world to the astral world. Our non clairvoyant mathematicians already have sensed the existence of a strange and related phenomenon. When we imagine a straight line, it seems to reach to infinity in both directions, in our ordinary space. But when we follow the same line in astral space, we see that it is curved. When we move along it in one direction, we eventually return from the other side, as if we were moving around the circumference of a circle. As the circle becomes larger, the time needed to go around it grows longer. Ultimately, the circle becomes so huge that any given section seems almost like a straight line because there is so little difference between the circle's very slightly curved circumference and the straight line. On the physical plane, it is impossible to return from the other side as we would do on the astral plane. While the directions of space are straight in the physical world, space is curved in the astral world. When we enter the astral realm, we must deal with totally different spatial relationships. Consequently, we can say that space is not the illusory structure we think it to be, but a self-contained sphere. And what appears to human beings as physical space is only an imprint or copy of self-contained space. Although we cannot say that space has limits where it is boarded up, we can say that space is self-contained because we always return to our starting point. Questions and Answers, Dusseldorf, April 21, 1909 Question. Does the concept of three-dimensionality apply to the spiritual hierarchies, since we speak of their, in quotes, areas of dominion? Steiner. We can say that a human being's essence is realized in space. Space itself, however, from the esoteric perspective must be seen as something produced as a result of creative activity its creation precedes the work and activity of the highest hierarchies so we can presuppose the existence of space we should not imagine the highest trinity in spatial terms however because space is a creation of the trinity we must imagine spiritual beings without space because space is a creation The effects of the hierarchies within our world, however, have spatial limits, as do those of human beings. The other hierarchies move within space. Question. Does time apply to spiritual processes? Steiner. Certainly, but the highest spiritual processes in the human being lead to the concept that they run their course timelessly. The activities of the hierarchies are timeless. It is difficult to talk about how time came about because the concept of time is implicit in the words to come about. Instead, we would have to talk about the essence or being of time, which is not easy to discuss. No time would exist if all beings were at the same level of development. Time arises through the interaction between a number of higher beings and a number of lower beings. In timelessness, various levels of development are possible, but their interaction makes time possible. Question. What is space? Steiner. We must imagine the Trinity without space, because space is a creation of the Trinity. As such, space is a creation and belongs to our world. Space is significant only for beings that develop within earthly existence. Between birth and death, human beings are cut off from the spirit in space and time in the same way that a worm lives beneath the Earth's surface. As for time, the highest states accessible to human beings are timeless. Because of the subtleties that come into play, It is not easy to speak about the concept of time coming into existence or about the essence or being of time. Time has had meaning only since the separation of the ancient moon from the sun. Everything external exists in space and everything internal runs its course in time. We are circumscribed by both space and time. There would be no time if all beings in the universe were at the same level of development. In timelessness, we can imagine evolutionary levels that are equivalent. The concept of time emerges when these levels begin to differ and to interact. Even the divinity evolves. As evolution continues, even the concept of evolution itself evolves. Questions and answers Düsseldorf, April 22, 1909. The wording of the question has not been preserved. Steiner's answer, We are able to visualize three-dimensional space. An important theorem of the Platonic school is, God geometrizes. Basic geometrical concepts awaken clairvoyant abilities. Positional geometry proves that the same point is everywhere on the circumference. The infinitely distant point on the right is the same as the starting point on the left. Thus, ultimately, the universe is a sphere, and we return to our starting point. Whenever I use geometric theorems, they turn into concepts at the borderline of normal conceptuality. Here, three-dimensional space returns us to our starting point. That is how in astral space point A can work on point B without any connection between them. We introduce materialism into theosophy when we make the mistake of assuming that matter becomes increasingly less dense as we move toward the spirit. This kind of thinking does not lead to the spirit, but ideas about the connection between point A and point B allow us to visualize the fourth dimension. As an example, we can think of the narrow waist of the gall wasp, see figure 63. What if the physical connection in the middle were absent and the two parts moved around together, connected only by astral activity? Now extend this concept to many spheres of activity, see figure 64, in higher dimensional space. Question and answer, Berlin, November 2nd, 1910. The wording of the question has not been preserved. Steiner's answer. Plants have four dimensions. In the direction of the fourth dimension, a force works from below upward, counteracting the force of gravity so that the sap can flow upward. This rising direction, in conjunction with the fact that the two horizontal directions are unimportant to the leaves, results in the spiral arrangement of the leaves. In plants, therefore, the downward direction or the direction of gravity is nullified by the fourth dimension. As a result, plants can move freely in one direction in space. Animals have five dimensions. Their fourth and fifth dimensions counteract two of the other dimensions. Because two dimensions are nullified in animals, Animals can move freely in two directions. Human beings are six-dimensional beings. Dimensions four through six counteract the other three dimensions. Consequently, three dimensions are nullified in humans. As a result, human beings possess three spatial dimensions and can move in three directions. Questions and answers. Basel, October 1st. 1911. Question. What is electricity? Steiner's answer. Electricity is light in the submaterial state, light compressed to the greatest possible extent. We must also attribute inwardness to light. Light is itself at every point. Warmth can expand into space in three directions, but in the case of light we must speak of a fourth direction it expands in four directions, with inwardness as the fourth. Questions and Answers, Munich, November 25, 1912 Question, Has spiritual science achieved anything with regard to the fourth and higher dimensions? Steiner's answer, It is not easy to make the answer to your question understandable. We human beings start from what we know from the physical, sense-perceptible world, where space has three dimensions. At least on a theoretical level, mathematicians formulate ideas about a fourth dimension and higher dimensions by analytically expanding their ideas on three-dimensional space through variables. At least in the context of mathematical thought, therefore, it is possible to speak of higher manifolds. For those familiar with these issues, that is, for those who put heart and soul into the question and also have the necessary mathematical knowledge, many things come to light. Let me mention simony in Vienna as an example. Readers aside, simony, I'm pronouncing it that way, is S-I-M-O-N-Y. and of readers aside. Initially higher dimensions exist only in ideas. Actually seeing them begins when we enter the spiritual world, where we are immediately forced to come to grips with more than three dimensions. There, any image presented to us, that is, anything that still possesses intrinsic characteristics of three-dimensionality, is nothing more than a reflection of our own soul processes. In the higher worlds, very different spatial relationships prevail, if indeed we still want to call them spatial relationships. The same is true with regard to time. There are always many people who argue, how can we be sure that all your claims are not based on hallucinations? Such people need to consider the situation with regard to time, because they disregard the fact that the field of spiritual science works with phenomena that are totally different from hallucinations. Your question provides an opportunity to supplement what i said in the lecture because it is never possible to say everything and today's lecture was very long let me still point out the changes that take place with regard to time and space when we enter the spiritual world the return of the images that we have banished to hades as it were makes sense only when approached in terms of higher dimensions there however This is just as natural and self-evident as three-dimensionality is in the sense-perceptible world. That is why ordinary geometry is a poor match for the beings and events of the spiritual world. On behalf of mathematicians, it must be said that their speculations about the fourth dimension acquire real value when we enter the spiritual world. Usually, however, their conclusions about higher-dimensional space are only generalizations, based on Euclidean three-dimensional perceived space, rather than on reality, to which their conclusions do not fully correspond. We would need still better mathematics in order to perform calculations regarding the beings and events that spiritual researchers investigate. And yet the answer to your question is yes. Correlations to a supra-sensible world, and also mathematical ideas about infinity, become a reality, especially certain subjects from the fringes of mathematics. Here is an example that I myself experienced many years ago. I know that I had a sudden flash of insight into an extremely important attribute of astral space when I was studying modern synthetic projective geometry and analytical mechanics at the university. There is a relationship here to the concept that on a straight line extending to infinity the infinitely distant point on the left is identical to the infinitely distant point on the right. That a straight line with regard to the arrangements of its points is really a circle. If we do not get winded and continue in a straight line long enough we return from the other side. We may understand this, but we should not draw conclusions from it, since conclusions lead nowhere in spiritual research. Instead, allowing phenomena to work on us leads to knowledge of the supersensible world. It is important not to overestimate mathematics when dealing with the supersensible world. Mathematics is useful only on a purely formal level. It cannot possibly grasp the reality of the situation. Like spiritual science, however, mathematics can be understood by means of forces inherent in the soul itself and is equally true for everyone. That is what mathematics and spiritual science have in common. Questions and answers, Berlin, February 13th, 1913. Question. Is the golden section based on occult laws? Steiner's answer Because it is founded upon the effect of what exists in space, the golden section is indeed based on an occult law. Goethe said of this law that what is most hidden is most revealed, and vice versa, namely the law that is intimately related to our human constitution, the law of repetition and varied repetition. If you look at Buddha's talks, for example, you find that the same content is always repeated with slight variations that must not be omitted because the content is not the only important factor. The golden section is not simply a matter of repetition. We repeatedly discover the same proportion since there are actually only three components. The self-contained character of a repetition, which, however, is not self-formed, is what makes the golden section so appealing to us. Questions and Answers, Berlin, November 27, 1913. Question, do human beings between death and rebirth have the same perception of time as those incarnated in bodies? Steiner's answer. My lecture on March 19, 1914, on the human being between death and rebirth, will supply more information on this subject. For today, let me just say that life after death means leaving the relationships of the sense perceptible physical world and entering totally different relationships of space and time. With the theory of relativity, we are beginning to develop different concepts of time. We can make the transition from the factors in the formula for movement into the circumstances of the spiritual world only when we use these factors in the form c equals s divided by t because s and t as we know them belong to the sense-perceptible world while c or v for velocity close actually belongs to the domain of inner experience even with regard to an inorganic object thus when we want to understand time in the spiritual world we must first speak of the quantum of speed that the being in question has then through comparison we as outsiders can determine something about temporal relationships through a comparison of sorts for example we can discover that speed is 3 times as great in life in kamaloka such investigations give us an impression of the relationship between time in spiritual life and time in the life of the senses. In the spiritual world, different principles of time prevail. In comparison with those of the sense-perceptible world, these principles are internalized and variable. Because the time we experience there is dependent on inner developmental processes, it cannot be compared in clear mathematical terms with periods of time in the physical world. Question and Answers, Stuttgart, 1919 The wording of the question has not been preserved. Steiner's answer Mathematics is an abstraction of the sum total of forces working in space. When we say that mathematical theorems are valid a priori, this statement is based on the fact that human beings exist within the same lines of force as other beings, and that we are able to abstract this from everything not belonging to the pattern of space, etc. Questions and Answers, Stuttgart, March 7th, 1920 First question Is the law of the absolute propagation of light correct? Second question Is there any reality to the relativity of time assumed by Einstein? Steiner's answer I assume that your first question deals with whether light in absolute space travels at a constant speed. As you know, we cannot really talk about the propagation of light in absolute space, because absolute space does not exist. What basis do we actually have for talking about absolute space? You said, and rightly so, that you assume the propagation of light is infinitely great and that light derives its actual propagation from the resistance of the medium. Now, I ask you, in your view, is it altogether possible to speak of the speed of light in the same sense that we speak of the speed at which any other body travels? Reply from Hermann von Barawal, absolutely not. Steiner continues, If we do not hypothetically equate light with any other body, we cannot measure its speed in the same way as that of any other body. Let's assume that an ordinary body, a material object, is flying through space at a certain speed. This object is at a specific place at a specific moment in time, and our entire method of measuring speed depends on considering the difference in the object's location from its point of departure at two different times. This method of measurement remains possible only if the moving material body completely leaves the points on the line in which it is moving. Let's assume that it does not leave these points but leaves traces behind. Applying this method of measurement immediately becomes impossible if the object moving through a given space does not leave that space but continues to occupy the line of movement not because we cannot measure the differences but because the propelling speed constantly modifies the propelled object. I cannot apply my ordinary method of measurement, when, instead of dealing with matter that leaves the space empty behind it, I am dealing with an entity that does not completely vacate the space, but leaves traces behind. Thus we cannot speak of a constant speed of light in the same sense that we speak of the speed of a material object because we cannot formulate an equation based on differences in location, which, of course, provide a basis for calculating speed. Thus, when we are dealing with the propagation of light, we find ourselves compelled to speak only about the speed of the outer propagation of light. But if we speak about the speed of the propagation of light, we should be obliged to go back constantly to the source of the spreading light in order to measure its speed. In the case of the sun, for example, we would be obliged to go back to the origin of the spreading light. We would have to begin measuring where the spread of light began, and we would have to assume, hypothetically, that the light continues to replicate indefinitely. This assumption is not justified, however, because the frontal plane in which the light is spreading, instead of always simply growing larger, becomes subject to a certain law of elasticity and reverses direction when it achieves a certain size. At that point, we are no longer dealing simply with spreading light, but with returning light, with light retracing the same path in reverse. On an ongoing basis, therefore, I am not dealing with a single location that I assume to exist in light-filled space, that is, with something that is spreading from one point to another, but with an encounter between two entities, one of which is coming from the center and the other from the periphery. Thus I cannot avoid asking the fundamental question, are we really dealing with speeds in the ordinary sense when we consider the transmission of light? I don't know whether or not I have made myself understood. I am not dealing with speed of propagation in the ordinary sense, and when I take the step from ordinary speeds to speeds of light, I must find formulas based on formulas for elasticity. If I may use the image of material movement, such formulas must reflect how elastically related portions of space behave in a closed, elastic system with a fixed sphere as its boundary. Therefore I cannot use an ordinary formula when I shift to describing the behavior of light. For this reason I see a fundamental error in Einstein's work, namely that he applies ordinary mechanical formulas, for that is what they are, to the spreading of light and assumes hypothetically that light can be measured in the same way as any material body flying through space. He does not take into account that spreading light does not consist of material cosmic particles speeding away. Light is an event in space that leaves a radiant trace behind. So that when I measure it, reference to drawing that it has not been preserved, I cannot simply measure as if the object comes this far and leaves nothing behind. When light is transmitted, however, there is always a trace here, and I cannot say that it is transmitted at a specific speed. Only the frontal plane is transmitted. That is the main point. I am dealing with a specific entity in space that has been subsumed by the spreading element. And then I see a second error that has to do with the first, namely that Einstein applies principles to the whole cosmos that actually apply to mechanical systems of points that approach each other, thus disregarding the fact that the cosmos as a whole system cannot be merely a summation of mechanical processes. For example, if the cosmos were an organism, we could not assume that its processes are mechanical. When a mechanical process takes place in my hand, it is not essentially determined merely by the closed mechanical system, because my entire body begins to react. Is it acceptable to apply a formula for other movements to the movement of light, or is the reaction of the entire cosmos involved? A universe without light is even more difficult to imagine without the reaction of the entire universe and this reaction works very differently from speeds in a closed mechanical system. It seems to me that these are Einstein's two principal errors. I have studied his theory only briefly, and we all know that mathematical derivations can indeed coincide with empirical results. The fact that starlight that has passed the sun, for example, coincides with theoretical predictions does not verify Einstein's theory once and for all. These two principal underlying factors are why Einstein's way of thinking is always so paradoxical and abstract. The situation here is somewhat similar to the example from Wilhelm Busch that you used earlier, where an arm is raised forcefully and you almost have the feeling that you are going to be slapped on the face. It's a bit like that when Einstein draws conclusions from what would happen if a clock sped away at the speed of light and then returned. I ask you, is there any reality to this notion? I absolutely cannot complete the thought, because I am forced to wonder what happens to the clock. If you are accustomed to restricting your thoughts to reality, you cannot carry thoughts such as this through to completion. The passages where Einstein presents such thoughts show that his conclusions are based on fundamental errors, such as the one I just mentioned. That was my first comment. On the subject of time, we would need to begin basing our thoughts on elastic formulas rather than ordinary mechanical formulas. We would need to borrow from the theory of elasticity. By extension, any distribution or spreading that forms a frontal plane cannot be imagined as an entity that continues to spread out to infinity. It always reaches a certain sphere where it turns back in on itself. If we want to address the reality of the situation, we cannot say that the sun radiates light that vanishes into infinity. That is never the case. There is always a boundary where the spreading force of elasticity is exhausted and turns back in on itself. There is no such thing as an infinite system that meets the criteria of spreading out and disappearing into nothingness. Any spreading entity reaches a boundary where it turns around, somewhat as if it were obeying the law that governs elastic bodies. When we speak of light, we are never dealing with something that continues to spread indefinitely in all directions. Instead, we always find a situation comparable to standing waves. That is where we must look for the formulas, not in ordinary mechanics. Then there is still the question of time itself. In fact, time does not go through all these transformations, does it? Here in the realm of mechanics, time as such is not a reality. Take the very simplest formula, s equals c times t. According to the ordinary law of multiplication, s must be essentially identical to c. Otherwise, the space s would be identical to the time, which is impossible. In this formula, I can think of space only as somehow mathematically identical to C. We cannot apply apples and pears, can we? We have to put one in terms of the other. In mathematical formulas, time can only be a number, which, however, does not mean that the reality of time is a number. We can write the formula like this only when we assume that we are dealing with an unnamed number. The formula C equals S divided by T is a different matter. Here we have a space, S, of a certain size as it relates to the size of the number T. The result is the speed, C. This is the reality of the situation regardless of whether I imagine atoms, molecules, or matter that occupies a specific perceivable amount of space. I must imagine that Anything I confront empirically has a specific speed. Any further conclusions are just abstractions. Time is something that I derive from the divisor, and the distance traveled is something I derive from the dividend. But these are abstractions. The reality, and this applies only to mechanical systems, is the imminent speed of each body. For example, when physicists accept atomic theory for other reasons, they must not assume that atoms exist without imminent speed. Speed is a true reality. Thus we must say that we abstract time, as such, from events and processes. It is actually an abstraction from events. Only the speeds of what we encounter can be seen as realities. When we understand this completely, we can no longer avoid concluding that what I call time appears as a result of phenomena. It plays a collaborative role in phenomena, and we must not disregard it as a relative. The collaboration of this abstracted factor yields a specific, real and fundamental concept of an organism's lifespan, for example... The lifespan of an organism cannot be measured externally. Its course is imminent. Any given organism has a specific inherent lifespan that is integrated into and results from all the processes taking place in the organism. The same is true of an organism's size. It is intrinsic to the organism and is not to be measured in relationship to anything else. The fitting conclusion is that such concepts of lifespan and size are not valid in the same way that we ordinarily assume. Human beings are a specific size. Now, let me hypothetically assume that very small human beings exist in our ordinary universe. For all other purposes, the size of human beings relative to other objects is not important. Their typical size is important to human beings, however, because this size is intrinsic. This point is important. Imagining that human beings can be arbitrarily larger or smaller is an offense against the entire universe. For example, certain scientific thinkers wonder what life would be like in a solar system that is infinitely large or small compared with ours. This question is nonsense. Both the sizes and the life spans of the real entities we encounter are matters of inner necessity. At this point I must state that any entity that can be considered a totality essentially carries its own time within it. I can look at a piece of an inorganic object independent of anything else, but I cannot do the same with a leaf, because its continued existence depends on the tree. Thus I must consider whether or not the entity I am observing is a totality, a whole, self-contained system. Any totality that I observe, however, incorporates time as an imminent factor. Consequently, I do not think much of the idea of an abstract time that exists outside objects and in addition to the time that is inherent in each object or event. Looking at time that is supposed to run from beginning to end is a bit like developing the abstract concept horse on the basis of individual horses. Individual horses exist in the external reality of space, but the concept requires something more. The same is true of time. Whether time is inherently changeable or not is essentially an empty question, because each total system in its own imminent existence has its own time and its own speed. The speed of any inorganic or vital process points back to this imminent time. For this reason, instead of a theory of relativity that always assumes we can relate one axial coordinate system to another, I would prefer to establish a theory of absolutes to discover where total systems exist that can be addressed in the same way we address an organism as a totality. We cannot talk about the totality of the Silurian period in the Earth's evolution, for example, because the Silurian period must be united with other evolutionary periods to form a system that is a totality. It is equally impossible to speak about the human head as a totality, because the rest of the body belongs with it. We describe geologic periods independently of each other as if that were the reality of the situation. It is not. One period is a reality only in connection with the entire evolution of the earth, just as a living organism is a reality from which nothing can be removed. Instead of relating our processes to coordinate systems, it would be much more pertinent to relate them to our own inherent reality, so that we could see the whole systems or totalities. At that moment, we would have to return to a certain type of monadism, we would overcome the theory of relativity and arrive at a theory of absolutes. We would then truly see that Einstein's theory is the last expression of the striving for abstraction. Einstein functions in abstractions that sometimes become intolerable when his assumptions are applied to very elementary matters. For example, how does sound work when I myself am moving at the speed of sound? If I do that, of course, I never hear real sounds, because the sound is traveling with me. To anyone who thinks in real terms, in terms of totalities, such a concept cannot be implemented, because any being that can hear would fall apart if it moved at the speed of sound. Such concepts are not rooted in observations of the real world. The same is true when I ask whether time is inherently changeable. Of course, it is impossible to confirm any changes in abstract or absolute time, which must be imagined a priori. When we talk about changes in time, however, we must grasp the reality of time, which we cannot do without considering how temporal processes are intrinsically linked to total systems that exist in the world. Questions and Answers, Stuttgart, March 7, 1920 Question. According to Einstein's theory, there is a tremendous amount of energy stored in one kilogram of matter. Is it possible to tap a new source of energy by breaking matter apart, that is, by spiritualizing it? Steiner's answer. The issues you raise are not related directly to the part of Einstein's theory that we discussed today. It certainly would be possible to release energy through the fission of matter. The theoretical aspects present no particular difficulties. The only question is whether we have the technology to utilize this energy. Would we be able to put to use the gigantic forces that would be released? We would not. If they destroy the motor, they are meant to run. We first would have to develop mechanical systems capable of harnessing this energy. From a purely theoretical perspective, releasing large amounts of radiant energy for use in a mechanical system requires a substance that can resist the energy. Releasing the energy is quite possible and much easier than utilizing it. Question. Would it be possible to eliminate matter altogether so that only energy or radiation is left? Steiner's answer. In a certain respect, matter is eliminated as in what happens in vacuum tubes. Only a flow of electricity remains. Only speed remains, and speed is the determining factor in the mathematical formulas that refer to this phenomena. The question is, does the formula E equals mc squared, in which energy and mass appear at the same time, Sufficiently consider the fact that mass as such is different from energy? Or, when I write this formula, am I very abstractly separating two things that are actually one and the same? Is this formula justifiable? It is justifiable only for potential energy, in which case Einstein's formula, E equals mc squared, is simply the old formula for potential energy in a new disguise. Question. Can't we take P times S as our starting point? Steiner's answer. A difficulty arises here simply because when I relate two members of one system of magnitude to something that belongs to another system, for example, if I relate the time it takes two people to do a certain job to a factor supplied by the sun's setting, the process in the whole system because it can truly be applied to all members of the system, very easily assumes the character of something that does not belong to any system, but can stand on its own. You must not assume that an abstraction such as a year that is derived from the solar system is also valid in another system. For example, if you confirm how much a human heart changes in five years, you can then describe the condition of a person's heart as it was five years ago in comparison to what it is now. But by simply continuing the same arithmetical process, you also can ask what that person's heart was like a hundred and fifty years ago or what it will be like three hundred years from now. This is what astronomers do when they start from the present state of the Earth. They neatly calculate changes over periods of time that make as little sense with regard to present conditions on earth as our calculations about the state of a human heart in 300 years. We always forget that a conclusion that is valid with regard to the imminent time of a process ceases to have meaning when the process comes to an end. Thus I cannot transcend the organism as a currently living total system. The total system allows me to keep my concepts within the system and I immediately violate the system when I step outside its bounds. The appearance of validity is evoked because we are accustomed to relating to systems of magnitude in the sense of total systems, and then make absolutes out of factors that apply only within such systems of magnitude. That is the end of Lecture 9 or Section 9.